Welcome to the podcast series, How She Leads. We are the hosts, Yu Bo Zhang and Julia Gooding. In each episode, we bring you interviews and inspirational stories from diverse female leaders to inspire girls and women across all backgrounds and cultures to lead with confidence. Hey, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. White Smith.、Uh, could you start by introduce、uh, by introducing yourself to our our audience,、um, your background, your career trajectory? Sure.、Um, my name is Kimberly White Smith, and I am the dean of the Lafayette College of Education at the University of Laverne, which is located about thirty five miles east of Los Angeles. We are a mid-sized private not-for-profit、uh, university.、Um, also, people refer to it as a liberal arts、uh, university or institution. We are also a Hispanic-serving institution, with about forty、um, percent of our students、um, as first-generation college-going. About fifty-five percent of our students identify as Latinx. And about in in my college,、um, which serves about twenty three hundred students,、uh, we mirror the university's diversity,、uh, but we also are about seventy seven percent women、um, who are striving to be educators. We have kind of a compendium of、um, educational programs from undergraduate child deve- development and educational studies. Master's degrees in counseling, education, school psychology, as well as、um, inclusive education, which other people might recognize as special education, multiple subject, which is elementary、um, education, and single subject, which is middle school and high school education, as well as a doctorate in organizational leadership. My background. I am a native of South Los Angeles. I grew up in an area in the '80s and the '90s we used to refer to as South Central Los Angeles.、Um, I grew up during a time where、um, education prospects、um, for African American and Latinx communities、uh, were not at their height. And so I remember my mom taking us to the local high school、uh, to enroll us. And when a fight broke out in the hallway, she said, "This is not, this is not for my babies." So uh, my mom um, eventually put us into a、um, a Catholic、uh, environment, a Catholic school environment.、Uh, my school. Uh, was run by a group of Hawaiian nuns,、um, and so being exposed to a, an education that was rich in culture,、uh, headed up by strong women, and seeing them as role models really helped me lean into my identity, not just as a woman, but also as someone who could see themselves as smart. I、um, I'm a foster child.、Uh, my parents, DC and、uh, Cleopatra White,、um, at the time, my mom was a retired、uh, soul food chef, and she was volunteering in the local、um, public hospital. And my father worked for Greyhound bus lines as a baggage handler, and so they were not rich people. 
But because they were retired, their daughter was a grown woman, they had grandchildren, they wanted to give back to the community. These were two African-American people who grew up in the rural South. They grew up in Texarkana, Arkansas. Uh, they were in their 50s at the time. And so they were born in 1919 and 1918. So they endured segregation. Um, they were part of the migration of African-Americans that went to Chicago and then came to um, California. And so they wanted an opportunity to give back and to serve their community. And so uh, they got the phone call that I was available, newborn, three days old. They went, picked me up and they never gave me back. So I'm one of the fortunate uh, um, foster youth that was actually eventually adopted by my foster family. I was emancipated at 16. Uh, when both my parents unfortunately um, passed on. But that solid foundation, um, that education they gave me, that private school education that they gave me, where I was exposed to beautiful, brown, strong, intelligent women, helped carry me over the hump of trying to figure out what life would be like um, for myself as an adult. It also really created a pathway for me to see education as my way to excel um, in life and to survive. So that's a little bit about me and my background. Wow, what an interesting background. Um, so I'm wondering, you mentioned that uh, seeing it, very important, that early age, that it kind of planted a seed in you to see the possibility what could be given, you know, your background, not much, you know, could be uh, uh, support uh, given the uh, economic status and education background. So in retrospect, do you feel... Um, how, what kind of a student, how would you describe and what, what kind of environment you feel that made you to thrive and to um, bravely to pursue the dream you have? And did you actually dream of where you are today? Or, um, yeah, if you could comment a little bit on that, it would be great. Sure. <clears throat> so it's interesting because... Um, my uh, my foster mom, who I refer to as my mom, she's the only mom that I, I've ever known. Um, she knew nothing about my background, where I came from, who my parents were. And um, for whatever reason, when other people asked her, like, who is, you know, Kimmy? Like, where did she come from? Like, who are her parents? Like, what happened? Like, how did you end up you know, um, bringing her into your home. She literally created a story about me because she did not want other people to um, label me. My mother, who only had a high school, you know, education, both of my parents only had high school educations, uh, already knew the power of labeling and how limiting it could potentially be. And so, uh, so she created, she fabricated a story about my background. She told everybody that my parents were um, college students, that they met, 
you know, at the local uh, university. And because they were young, they could not keep me. And so uh, that's why they, um, they, they left me uh, to be um, fostered and then ultimately adopted. And so all my life, people treated me as if there was an expectation that I was going to be a smart kid, right? Because obviously my genetic pool, both of my, my you know, genetic parents went to college. Uh, so obviously she's, in, she's meant to be smart. The power in this story is the foresight of my mom to create uh, a bubble for me to move forward into this identity. This identity is something that actually is not a part of my history. Uh, my, my biological mom was a single mother. Uh, she basically, you know, um, worked in the streets um, and hustled for a living. And so, um, so my background is completely different than the one that my mom fabricated for me. But as a result of that, it insulated me, it protected me. And I began to really believe that it was my destiny to excel in school. Oh, what an amazing uh, lady, young lady, your your foster mom actually uh, was that story and realized the power of a story and the power of belief. So mm -hmm. this made me think of, you know, on a daily basis, not only parents, but also teachers, right, when interact with our students. And, and this all relate. Uh, to what we have been talking about, what is the best practices um, um, with equitable outcome, the expectation um, of every single student and meet their needs to give what they actually need to thrive. Um, I'm wondering, given your, um, so the background with um, a foster family, have you ever, um, been um, seeing obstacles or roadblocks uh, regarding your um, either identity, for example, a gender or from a foster family uh, with less educated parents, or um, if there are those moments, how did you actually overcome? Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, um, unfortunately, um, neither of my parents um, survived through the end of my high school career. When I was um, 16, um, I was left to, to fend for myself, although they had the foresight to um, make a way for my high school tuition to be paid. So my education was not um, disrupted. The thing that was um, interesting about not having that parental protection anymore was that my, my high school advisor was then um, able to manipulate and to um, uh, plant things uh, in, my, in my way that did cause roadblocks and obstacles. For instance, um, uh, when I went in to find out everyone else in my class had been applying to college. And so I wanted to know why I didn't get an application to apply for college. So I went to go see her and she told me point blank, people like you don't go to college. 
And she suggested that I go to trade school to learn how to make a living in that way. And it's interesting um, because um, a, a white friend, peer, um, who had no uh, desire to go to college, um, went to the same advisor and said, hey, I want to go to trade school. I want to learn to be uh, a cosmetologist. She said, oh, no, you need to go to college and put her in AP classes. So she did not put me in AP classes. I had to fight and struggle to get the academic uh, support that I needed in order to um, be college ready. And so a peer of mine who went to an all girls black Catholic school, again, in the 80s um, and the 90s, Catholic school education was a, a, a significant um, a boon for black and Latinx communities that were trying to help support um, their um, children to get an access to equitable education. Um, so my best friend uh, was, a, was trained to be a peer college um, mentor. And so she got an application for the UCs. I applied, I got accepted to all um, with scholarship. And so uh, I went back to my counselor and said, uh, well, it looks like I'm going to college. I just need to figure out which one of these is the furthest away from you. And so she picked UC Berkeley and said, that's the one that's the furthest away. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to UC Berkeley then. And so I went to Berkeley uh, for undergraduate. And once I um, became, uh, you know, got entrenched in college, I was able to kind of go through my parents' things. And then I found out you know, the truth about, you know, my background and where I came from and who uh, my mom uh, was. And so this idea of, of really acknowledging the gift that my mom gave me and creating that story and helping people who might not have seen um, the genius in me, uh, uh, really kind of lean into that and help me propel myself forward in education. And so that is a gift that I have carried with me and is a part of my philosophy as an educator is that all of our children have some form of genius within themselves, whatever that might be. It might be that they are creative in music. It might be that they're artists. It might be that they're dancers. It might be that they're rocket scientists. Whatever their genius is, um, these uh, stories about who they are either present themselves as an obstacle to achieving that genius or as a vehicle to help them achieve that genius. And so for me as an educator, understanding that, I always try to um, sow seeds of high expectation of love, of self-love into all of my students. At that point, I dedicated myself to really um, digging in and supporting uh, my kids that um, are were growing up and being educated in urban and rural um, communities and environments. 
Mm -hmm. So it seems to be very clear that given your background and the incident you mentioned with that advisor uh, makes you determined to actually uh, giving back to the community um, and working um, as an educator to promote for the equity in higher education. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a because that was a lot of power. In that instance, that person wielded a lot of power. And if I had bought into that, mm -hmm. or if I did not have um, access to the, you know, the navigational mm -hmm. capital that, you know, my friend was able to lend to me, right? If we think of all the ways communities of color exhibit, you know, um, um, perseverance and um, resiliency, um, and, you know, cultural capital in our own unique ways, if I had not had access to that, you know, my life would look very different. Mm -hmm. So part of it is internal, like there's somehow this strong desire that you know what you want and you like your, your parents, your foster parents, uh, the story help you get the confidence that you know you, you want to be there and you can get there. That's one thing. But the other thing, do you feel like there could be some um, network or any other um, positive force around you or uh, other advisors or mentors? Uh, having that network is important as well. Um, if you could give some advice to the young people in regards to a lot of time, because we have seen um, um, kids very good with technical skills, right, with their work. But it may be the, the side of um, um, communication or networking, not necessarily as strong. How, what's your view on that? And we all understand, first of all, you have to be hardworking and get, you know, all the solid work, quality work. But in terms of having a supportive network, do you see, do you feel like this is also something like, like, like behind, especially in families that may be traditionally underrepresented in certain area? What's your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, you know, that is is very interesting because I feel like a lot of the kids in uh, communities like the ones that I grew up in have um, such uh, um, strong potential and their ability to lock that potential in or demonstrate that potential in school is either um, supported or it is diminished based on uh, the individual. So the teachers or the school environment to accept or reject, you know, those um, skills. So if we talk about familial capital, like the familial capital that my foster parents gave me, they were only high school educated, but you know, they participated in things that demonstrated great academic skills that I was able to map onto. For instance, uh, you know, we grew up near Inglewood and Holly Park racetrack. And so my mom would love to take us to go see the horses and she would show us, oh, this is the process of 
multiplying your money by picking great horses. These are the things that you look at to pick a great horse. You look at their breeding, you look at their color, you look at their muscle tone, you look at their rider is the rider experience. And then you think to yourself, well, how much can I afford to lose um, if I were to place a bet on this particular horse? And how much would that then spin off for me to win? And so my mom uh, inadvertently was teaching us mathematics. She was teaching us really highly valuable skills that to be quite honest, in most schools, they wouldn't value and they wouldn't understand how to interpret that in a way um, to really capitalize on it. And I'll give you an example. I remember going into a classroom when I, uh, was an, an observer. And I remember this teacher who was giving a lesson um, about airplanes and aviation um, crafts. And he was talking about a helicopter and the ways in which a helicopter is different from other you know, airplanes, what made it unique. And I'll never forget, there was a young man in his classroom uh, who had just um, arrived, a new immigrant to the area from Mexico, Mexico. And the young man, although his English was limited, really connected to what the teacher was saying. And so he raised his hand and he said, hummingbird. And in that moment, I'm like, oh my God, how amazing. This student was able to take what the teacher was saying, even though his English um, skills were limited and was able to translate it into something that he was familiar with, right? Because a hummingbird is unique from any other bird, just like a helicopter, because it can go up and down. It could go sideways and backwards and forwards, just like a hummingbird. And so instead of the teacher recognizing that, the teacher said, ah, oh, Miguel, you're not paying attention. You're not understanding. We're not talking about birds here. We're talking about aircraft. Okay. So, you know, Louise, could you make sure that Miguel pays attention in the future? And so how many opportunities do we miss as educators that informal um, ways of knowing and being are not accepted and brought to the table as part of the educational experience. And so that is really, I think, key um, in, in really turning around um, the disenfranchisement of communities of color and low-income income communities of color and getting uh, students engaged in their educational um, process, especially now after we've experienced a year and a half of COVID and, and, and ongoing, and we have a whole generation of kids who've experienced fully online education. The kids who actually engaged um, in that because they were in situations where they weren't being bullied, where they weren't having to deal with um, external barriers to the educational process. Kids who didn't do well because they were missing that social, emotional um, 
piece of the educational experience, but also um, the, the missing opportunities to see and recognize students for who they are and the skills and the gifts that they bring to the table um, that could you know, be leveraged to elevate them and to engage them in the education process. So um, really thinking about how um, students who have been traumatized you know, over the last several um, years and thinking about the trauma that, you know, communities of color experience due to racialized hate and violence. Um, we as educators, you know, have to be committed to thinking differently about what we value as um, uh, educational experiences, right? And ways in which our students demonstrate their unique geniuses. What a great example, the hummingbird. Um, it's, it, it tells the story where there's only one norm, if almost like the, right, accepted norm of talent, finding talent, right? And uh, But talents could manifest in so many different ways across cultural way, especially with all other layers of factors. And you're uh, definitely, what you had talked about triggered a lot of thinking in me, part of it also, we keep saying, we would do, you know, uh, summarize, analyzing, categorize, statistics, reporting, and look at our reporting always by ethnic group. But the point is not to, when in contact individually, to labeling, like if you're this group membership, you are this. Um, this also makes me think about the, uh, some of the ways we actually are doing reporting, what kind of message we actually try to send. Uh, not to reinforce some of the stereotypes. So then this also goes back to what you mentioned, the example your foster mom did, how she actually uh, taught you some of the book knowledge in a very live, um, you know, uh, like a classroom, but not formal classroom, right? But it was very applied, almost like the PBL now we talk about. So this made me think as an educator, over these many years, do you think our education is going to the right way? <laughs> Thinking of all this, what we need for, for students to be able to know themselves, know their talent, know their passion, and give everyone the help find that and give them the skill and confidence to get there. Do you feel like our current education system, and there's always a word to build back better, um, are we on the right track or are we getting closer to that actually further away from that? So it's interesting because we, uh, we as citizens of, of the United States and, and people who live here, we see or we recognize the education system as one thing, the education system, like it's, it's monolithic, like it's this one big gigantic entity. But in fact, in the U.S., we have multiple systems that educate our kids. And depending on who you are, how much money you have, where you live, what your ethnic background is, it really, um, uh, 
is uh, an indicator of what the access that you have to the very different systems of education that we have. I just, you know, told you earlier that um, my mom pulled my brother and me out of our local public education system where we lived in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, we did not have access access to resources, to um, highly qualified teachers at the time. And so they then paid money and put us into a private school education. That's a completely different system. You know, the um, Catholic school system is a completely different system than our public school system, which is completely different from other types of elite private schools. You have boarding schools, you have day schools. Um, and then even within the public school system, there are um, different uh, types. You have, um, you know, um, charter schools, you have magnet schools. Um, uh, my daughter went to a public school, but it also was considered a magnet school and considered one of the best schools, you know, in our particular area. So we really, we don't have a system of education. We have a very stratified system of education. And um, with regards to equity right now, um, we don't have a good means of creating equity for all children. Right now, the best that we can do as um, educators of educators is to make um, the folks that we work with in the communities and the districts that we work with aware of these inequities. We can push them to look at their data, to recognize are we mislabeling our black and brown youth and funneling them into uh, these identities like socio-emotional disorder that have nothing to do with academic deficiencies or cognitive deficiencies and have everything to do with disenfranchised behavior, right? Um, these labels that have um, impact on the future of their trajectory, right? And, and also causes educators in the future that might inherit them to treat them, to continue to treat them in ways that diminish their educational potential. So we're looking at a system of tracking. Um, so the best we can do is to really press the people, the districts, the, the teachers and the, the other educators that we're developing, the educational leaders, the principals that we're developing, push them to be reflective about their practices, push them to examine their own data in their classrooms, classroom level data, school level data, district level data. Look at the trends, look at and see what it is that we're doing. And then how can we change, um, uh, um, you know, our practices in order to meet the students where we are and to help elevate them and give them access to a more equitable um, education. But to more directly answer your question, this idea of moving away from this, you know, uh, uh, westernized um, idea ideology about what education should be. So 30 kids sitting in a row, 
um, listening to lecture, being able to regurgitate information um, is moving away from that is the best thing that we can do. And it's interesting because if you look at private school education in the United States, you'll see what? Smaller class sizes. You see um, kids engaging in hands-on activities. You see kids engaging in um, thought-provoking types of engagement. So we hold our public school system to standards of um, uh, testing and regurgitation that people who have a lot of money uh, and send their kids to private school, right, uh, actually don't really believe in, right? They want their children to be independent thinkers. They want their children to have opportunities to lead, to be able to talk in their classroom. This idea that children shouldn't talk in class, they should be silent. How we are training our kids in the public school education versus how the expectation for leadership, for communication, for you know, critical thinking skills that we see in privates um, really says a lot about us. So are we expecting um, kids who uh, can't afford private school education to be trained to be workers and those who are able to get critical thinking skills, leadership skills, uh, communication skills as leaders, uh, we really need to think about um, uh, the practices we use and the modalities that we use and the, the unanticipated expectation of that um, with regards to our kids. And no wonder, you know, we have so many kill kids who rebel against that. Um, so many of the kids in my local community, I actually live in the community that I grew up in. I love it. I love the people here. And I see kids who are entrepreneurial, making t-shirts, selling them on the corner, um, you know, engaging with people, you know, uh, being entrepreneurial. And so I too, if I was that kid with that spirit, I would rebel against an education system that would relegate me to sit in my seat and to take tests and regurgitate, you know, information. I want to create, right? Education should be about learning and creating. Um, and so we have to be careful when we, when we talk about children and uh, having to develop their own internal motivation and work hard and have work ethic because we don't know their history. We don't know the times that they've tried and have been turned away or disenfranchised in their educational experience. And so when we see those children with those shells and that are sitting there and seem disconnected and might get labels such as lazy, um, uh, we need to be very careful um, because it might have been our own education system that uh, compelled them to develop that protective shell and to engage in that um, identity in order not to be beaten down. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. So I'm wondering, as you were talking, was thinking about this, right, globally, if we think globally, when we compare to different educational system, there's an Asian option. I was growing up there in Asian education system. Then you also have the uh, the European system where like Germany has been, uh, you know, talked a lot recently with their tracking where the majority actually more kind of like professional school, like a CTE type of a technical where you can land a job, but it doesn't mean you're not a critical thinker. So if we think the whole society where the path, right, end up with majority raise a happy kid with, with a skill set that could land a, a job, um, I'm wondering, like, is there existing like a system where we feel like we, we we are more aligned to, or we are maybe just very unique in terms of where we we maybe need to accept some new models, or are there existing ones which we, we could look into? And I guess that's my one question. And then my second question maybe shifted to a little bit the again the teachers teaching force. Again, if we compare culturally, where these are the ones interact daily with our students, and we talk about cultural responsiveness, um, how affirm students, give them confidence. But if we look at the data, our teacher force statistics, um, not as diverse as our student population. And does that indicate we need to actually work a lot on, on, on that aspect? Yeah, just these two questions, sorry. A little bit long. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me see if I can try to, to answer some of that. Um, so uh, the teacher workforce right now is definitely not nearly as diverse as um, the demographics of the student populations that we serve. And when we think for instance, you know, um, uh, you know, with regards to um, those of us who work in higher ed and um, teacher prep, teacher education, we have to, I think, mirror what we want in our PK-12 system. And for me, that would be access to a variety of different ways of teaching and learning right? Not just one thing. I, I talked a little bit about that young person who might be entrepreneurial minded, right? You know, creating a brand and selling, you know, um, a, a particular type of t-shirt and making, you know, a business out of that. I have, I have in my lifetime known many individuals who have, for instance, become you know, um, uh, you know, hairstylists to the stars, right? Or people who um, really loved, um, you know, creating and making things. And so eventually created a, um, a, a shoe, a particular types of shoes, belts, because of their love of crafting and turn that into a multi-million dollar business. Um, so education should not 
look the same for everyone. And I think the goals, the educational goals should be up to the individual with regards to, like you said, what their passion is, what they are excited about. Um, and there should be a recognition of the uh, familial and cultural capital, right? This idea of culturally responsive um, um, pedagogy. There should be a recognition of what these individuals bring to the table and using that to engage them and to get them excited about the learning process. And so, but the bottom line is, is that every kid needs to have access to highly qualified uh, teachers, to adequate resources, to get the, the basic education foundation, right, in order to then make a more informed decision about what it is that they want to do with their lives, right? Um, when I was growing up, uh, I did not know what I wanted to do. And I also had the wherewithal to understand that I had not been exposed to enough things to be able to make a choice about what I wanted to do in life. So I really kind of, I went into college knowing that I wanted to make a difference in my community. I just didn't know what that would look like, right? I didn't have models to show me, but I did have models to show me that you can learn in every single space that you're in. I did have models to show that if you aren't being treated well, that you fight for the right to whatever it is that you need. I also had models that showed me if I was not um, uh, pleased, right, uh, with the situation that I currently have or what the goods are that you're offering me or what the situation is that you're telling me that I need to, to be in, that I could then go and get something else, right? And so um, it's those types of skills and access that need to be a part of all of the educational experiences that all of our students um um, should have. But yeah, I do believe that um, um, there should be diversity with regards to, um, you know, what the goals are and that that should be developed alongside what the kids' um, excitement um, um, and engagement is, if that makes sense. And yes, we do need more teachers of color. And that's where, again, um, people think of private um, universities as, you know, ivory towers. And we do have some ivory towers. And I went to a couple in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the private that I work at is a, a Hispanic serving institution. We, we also um, have access to um, historically Black colleges and universities. We also have access um, to uh, tribal colleges, to anapesis, um, to, to higher ed 
um, um, you know, privates and publics that really kind of reinforce and support and elevate um, the cultural identities of um, the students um, from diverse communities. And I feel like we should do more uh, to support those options, right? Our students are not one size fits all. And so in thinking about that, you know, uh, private school education should also be accessible to um, um, our communities. When you think of um, the diverse teaching force in the state of California, which is where I am, um, almost 50% of the teachers of color are produced by private universities. And so, um, so we have to think of variety of different ways of um, access. Um, and also what would help all of our students be successful. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally agree. It sounds like we have actually a lot of work to do. And I'm sure there's a lot, quite a lot of the research articles out there, uh, roadblocks for a diverse teaching course. <laughs> and uh, we do have, I think, a lot of work to do. And, and, and if we are able to get to the point where the teaching course are a whole lot more diverse and they're not only one standard way, the only right way of teaching learning, then I think we naturally will get closer to where we how we want to support every single student in the best way we could. Um, time went by so fast. I realized it's almost an hour and I know I have a hard stop, but um, maybe I can um, uh, uh, conclude our great conversation by one last question, though I have many. <laughs> and, uh, maybe if you can give one piece of advice to all the um, um, young female professionals or even high school girls, what would that uh, piece of uh, um, otherwise be, especially thinking they could be at a point where they need to make a kind of a life decision, which college I go, you know, at that point, it's, it is sounds like a life decision for them. Mm -hmm. What are some things, you, the advice you would give to them? Absolutely. So I would say that the the thing that I have learned in crafting my career is um, be intentional about where you want to go and what you want to do in life. Um, you know, I went into college not being intentional. I just wanted to escape L.A. at the time and just to be somewhere different and to you know, meet friends and just to, you know, breathe, inhale, exhale. And that's important. Number one, that self-care, that self-preservation, you need that foundation first and foremost. Once you have that foundation, then you go into the mode of uh, being intentional, right? So uh, finding role models um, of people who you admire, who are doing things that are similar to things that you feel you might want to do. At every step of the way in my career, 
I have had a role model. I didn't have the end game. I never imagined being a dean. Like that was never like my goal in life. I didn't even know that was something that existed or was possible for me. So I just had baby steps. So when I was in an undergraduate in college, you know, I saw, you know, um, you know, uh, Grace Carol Massey was one of my professors in African-American studies. And uh, she was amazing. She, she, I learned so much from her. And also one of the things that I learned from her was that, you know, leaning in on the experiences that our families have brought to us is really important. And you take that with you everywhere you go. And that is your foundation. That is your core. Um, you know, uh, and then I went into my master's degree program once I realized, OK, I want to become a teacher uh, there. I met, you know, Aileen uh, Goodwin, and she has been unable to get rid of me um, and to see, you know, at the time, you know, a woman, a woman of color who uh, was, you know, at the time oversaw my teacher education program and eventually went on to become, you know, vice dean of, you know, um, Teachers College uh, was amazing to witness uh, um, and to see and to know, wow, uh, perhaps it is something that I could eventually do. Um, when I got my doctorate, you know, I, I clung to the words and the wisdoms of, of Etta R. Hollins, who, you know, able, who was able to lead me through, you know, my dissertation phase and to guide me into, you know, this really scary machine of higher education and to help navigate that, you know, as an assistant and associate and a full professor. So, so I would say find a role model um, or someone that you could see as a mentor to help you figure out, you know, if you're creating an outfit, you know, you're creating your, uh, your, your, you know, your, your outfit from a pattern, right? You go to the store and you buy a pattern, buy the pattern, look at the pattern. Oh, see what the, the pieces are. These are the types of buttons that you have. This is the type of stitching. Once you have the pattern, then you can take that and riff off of it and say, oh, I want different types of buttons or, you know what? I don't want buttons. I want a zipper. Uh, you can then create it to be something of your own. So that would be my best advice to the, the young women who are coming up through the pipeline. Thank you so much. So be intentional and find a role model and recreate that pattern. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. What a great conversation we had today. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Whitesmith, for your time today. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciated talking to you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to How She Leads. Special thanks to our guests and to all the educators and women acting as role models and mentors. Music credit to the artist Ketza. Thank you again for listening and look forward to sharing more stories of inspirational women who lead next time.